Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 5 of the Average Trilly podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today we are looking at your supplement checklist. Reason being, because this is the question I get asked all the time. You know, it's a case of, like, Chris, yeah, we kind of understand that carbohydrates are important, that, yeah, we probably need to be eating some form of vegetables in our diet, but we don't really care about that. We just want to know about the supplements. And, you know, that's where a lot of people place a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of focus and really prioritize to get that next level in their performance, body composition, and so on, where, you know, it just really isn't the case. So when we look at the supplement side of things, I'm going to split this into three sections. So your health-based supplements that I recommend, um, your training week supplements, and then your competition game day event as more specialized supplements for that. Now, this isn't going to be an ex- overly extensive list just because there really isn't a huge amount we really need to be looking at. Um, because again, as cliche as it sounds, you know, we need to be following a food first approach and getting all our nutrients through our food. Um, that is first and foremost the most important thing. Now, if we look at the um, like the priorities or hierarchy pyramids that you see, where perhaps a calories at the bottom, then next protein, then fat and carbs, and all that kind of stuff, you know, supplements are right at the top of the pyramid. You know, they they do have their place in a diet, and you know, you can get nice performance benefits from it. Um, but you know, that's not at the expense of you know, um, forgetting about your actual diet, your food that you eat, because um, that's ultimately the most important thing that's going to drive a whole host of things with regards to body composition, uh, performance, fueling, recovery, immune function, rehabilitation, all that kind of stuff. And it's coined quite nicely in terms of, you can see your diet as the cake itself, where supplements are almost like the ice on top or the, you know, the sprinkles, like the hundred thousands, you know, you can't have the hundred thousand type sprinkles without the cake itself. So we really got to be spending most of our time nailing our nutrition day in, day out, and sort of ticking off all of those um, nutrient boxes, shall we say. Um, so food first approach is super important. And then when we look at any form of supplement or any kind of nutrition intervention, like eating strategy, we always have this one rule. And the rule is first, do no harm. So everything we need to do either has to have a neutral to positive effect. If there's any sign of a negative, you know, we just don't do it at all. It's not worth the risk um, in terms of like your performance, health and perhaps even getting banned if you're taking some dodgy looking supplements um so that's really the approach i have so when someone presents a you know a supplement to me or nutrition strategy i always think to myself like right obviously what is it and in what context uh, are you looking to use it in and there first of all does it have any negatives um if there's no negatives then okay then okay like does it have any neutral to positive effects? If it does, then okay, perhaps let's look at this in more detail. And if it has place in your diet, once the diet itself is complete. So when it comes to the supplement list itself, um, like I mentioned, I kind of split this into your health-based supplements, your training week supplements, and then your performance-based supplements. 
And just like we periodize our training then our nutrition and eating strategies like we covered before, uh, we're also going to look at periodizing our supplements as well. So when it comes to the health side of things, I basically just look at two main supplements, really. Um, so those two supplements are vitamin D and omega-3 or your fish oils. So when we think of the health side of stuff, it really is just to eliminate any nutrient deficiencies. So, for example, vitamin D. If you are, say, sunshine, you're, you know, you have very poor dietary sources of vitamin D. So things like, um, you know, fish or eggs, um, and perhaps you're more prone to sort of um, stress fractures, stuff like that. We're probably going to put more priority on vitamin D supplementation because we know that vitamin D regulates things like your innate and acquired immune system. It's going to be very beneficial for your bone health, your cardiovascular health, and it's also going to be very important for, say, gene, gene transcription for most um, cells and tissues. So it is going to be very, very important. Now, we know that we're going to get, you know, about 90% of vitamin D through sun exposure or seriously light exposure and if you say in the UK as you could probably imagine you know sun exposure is pretty poor especially throughout the winter months so therefore I would always suggest that we look at some form of vitamin D supplementation throughout the winter months from say autumn right through to spring so reason being is that once uh, the UVB rays from the sun uh, makes contact with our skin. It is then going to create vitamin D within the body. And then, like I say, we're going to have that host of benefits. Um, but first of all, again, like I was saying, if there's no sunshine in your country, like the UK, because it's pretty shit weather all the time, um, then we probably need to look at it. Or even if you are, for example, um, out in the sun, but it's very cold and you're wrapped up and therefore your skin is not exposed, you know, those UVB rays aren't really going to penetrate your, uh, your clothing and, you know, create vitamin D. So long story short is that we just need to have um, adequate sun exposure. And like I was saying there, about roughly 90% of your vitamin D is derived from sun exposure. So when we look at supplementation-wise, I would always recommend about 1,000 IU to maintain your vitamin D levels throughout the winter months. Now, you can go a higher dose than that, so up to about 4,000 IU to treat deficiencies, but you're not really going to know if you're properly nutrient deficient in vitamin D uh, unless you get any blood work done, uh, which obviously is going to be more of an expensive kind of route, but I wouldn't suggest going up to that kind of dosage unless you're getting testing. So a safe uh, dose to take is about 1,000 IU per day throughout the winter months. Um, as with many supplementation or strategies, you know, more is not more. And, you know, high dosages, perhaps up to 10,000 IU per day, can be very negative to your health. So you kind of got um, vitamin D being health-promoting and then can be sort of detrimental to health. So, you know, the dose makes the poison, as with many things. So that would be the first thing we look at, really, is your vitamin D um supplementation purely because we're not going to get enough um through our diet and then especially during the winter months during, during the summer months when obviously sun exposure is high and we're perhaps wearing shorts and t-shirts and more skin is uh, on show uh we can probably get adequate amounts then
Then when we look at, you know, your fish oils or omega-3s, um, these are also going to be very beneficial in your diet because we know that they, say, decrease triglyceride levels, um, decrease your blood pressure, they improve your mood if you are slightly depressed, and they have the potential to decrease inflammation, but uh, the research in this area is pretty mixed. Um, so when we look at the recommendations for fish oil, we're looking about one gram per day of EPA and DHA combined. So they're the omega-3 fatty acids that we're looking for. Now, that's what the American Heart Association would recommend. Um, but we know that, again, we want to follow a food-first approach. Now, you can easily get adequate amounts of EPA and DHA into your diet just by consuming some cold water fish. So say, for example, 200 grams of salmon will give you roughly about three and a half grams of EPA and DHA combined, where say mackerel, about 200 grams again, will give you about two grams. So we could just look at having them in our diet a few times a week and we'll naturally just hit our weekly quota of uh, EPA and DHA. But, you know, if you really dislike fish and you really despise having it and it'll affect the overall sustainability of your diet if you force feed it into your mouth then it's a case of okay maybe don't have that let's opt for a supplement and that's when it could be beneficial um now there could be some areas we look at uh higher dosages perhaps during injury and rehabilitation to again perhaps manage inflammation and therefore improve the anabolic resistance to the muscle associated with muscle disuse and injury but don't worry about that we're going to cover that in due course um, but for general sort of day-to-day week-in week-out stuff um, a fish oil supplement might be beneficial if you're not having enough to your diet say for example I like having sort of salmon in my diet a few times a week. Therefore, I have no need to supplement. But if I didn't like having, you know, any form of cold water fish, then I probably would look at a supplement. So if you have like a very well-balanced uh, diet, you know, a variety of foods, different colors in there, you know, you're naturally going to cover your um, nutrition requirements. So therefore, all we perhaps need to look at then is a vitamin D and perhaps a fish oil. Uh, vitamin D, again, depend on the time of the year and fish oil, whether you like having oily fish and so on. So when we sort of, um, sort of tie that up nicely, we can then look into the training week. Now, when we look at the training week, these are really supplements to support um, training performance and perhaps look at improving adaptations and so on. So these are the ones I would just pretty much just run most of the year around. So the three we really look at here is whey protein, creatine, and beta-alanine. So whey protein um, or any form of protein powder in that fact um, is really for two main things, um, convenience and to hit a higher protein intake. Like there's nothing magical about pro, um, like protein powders. Um, you know, if you say have 25 to 30 grams of whey protein, that's going to be very similar to having, you know, a chicken breast, a few eggs, some fish, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's no magic in whey protein or any form of protein powders. They're there just for the convenience. So say, for example, we know that we perhaps need to be having 
protein every three, four-ish hours, i.e. just evenly distributing our protein throughout the day to maximize muscle adaptation, repair, remodeling, and so on. So if you finish a session and you really just don't have any form of appetite, uh, just because it's really hard and nothing can really sit down and you don't want to have um, you know, a big meal to start the recovery process, this is when shakes, smoothies, stuff like that come in handy. You know, it's much easier to drink your calories when you have a suppressed appetite. So this works really, really well. Um, you know, like if you've been a client of mine or currently a client with mine, um, you know that I love sort of like say having overnight oats for breakfast. And, you know, we can just mix in a scoop of whey protein uh, with the overnight oats and it just naturally increases the protein content of that meal. Um you know, you could even make, say, protein pancakes, protein brownies, all that kind of stuff. It is there to help increase the protein content of your diet. Now, if you're, say, a, I don't know, a 60-kilo female athlete, you know, you could probably hit your protein intake, your protein quota for the day really quite easy through a food-first approach. But if you're, say, you know, a tie head prop in rugby union and you're weighing 125, 130 kilos and you need to be having about 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of protein per day and you're pushing upwards of like 270 grams of protein, um, you know, within the space of 24 hours, you know, that's a lot of food to eat. So therefore, you know, whey protein or any, again, any form of supplementation uh, that's high in protein could be beneficial here. So again, there's nothing magic about protein supplements. It is more for the convenience side of things. Secondly, uh, creatine is unbelievably um, beneficial in your diet. This is something I probably recommend for pretty much everybody, uh, regardless of whether they're an athlete or not an athlete. So from an athlete's perspective, is really going to benefit sort of high-intensity-based uh, repeated efforts, so a high-intensity exercise capacity, and then it's going to have some nice chronic outcomes as well in terms of increasing muscle, strength, and power. Essentially, the reason why we look to supplement with creatine is to increase the creatine stores within the muscle. So after sort of creatine supplementation, we can increase the stores in the muscle by about 20%. And when we do that, we know that we can perhaps further support our exercise performance. And so when we think of when, say, um, you know, carbohydrates, fats, and even protein is broken down to be used as fuel, it is, you know, broken down into the final form known as ATP, which is like a universal energy source. Now, ATP if we got wind back the block, uh, wind back the clocks to our biology class, it stands for adenosine triphosphate. So adenosine tri, as in three phosphates. So when that gets broken down, um, it gets converted to adenosine diphosphate, so two phosphates, and so on. So the idea is having more creatine in the muscle, and therefore we increase this phosphocreatine pool. So. What's really cool about this is that once we have a bigger creatine phosphate pool, we can donate one of these phosphates to a DP, so adenosine diphosphate, so two phosphates, and then we can regenerate it back up, back up to triphosphate, so three. So we know that you know breaking down carbohydrates and fats and so on is quite a timely process. 
um, with carbs being faster than fat to break down and use. Um, but this sort of phosphocreatine system just works very, very quickly. And therefore, that's why we can sustain high-intensity-based exercise. So it's going to be really beneficial um, for, say, for example, if you're doing team sports and you know, you're know doing multiple sort of sets there and just everything sort of repeated high-intensity, super beneficial. It could even mean a case of if you're doing a high rep training in the gym, you get a few more reps out, increase your total training volume, and therefore, you know, increase muscle mass and so on. Um, we know that it's also going to be very beneficial for um, improving your skill set if you're sleep deprived, um, just because we know that we can further increase the creating pools within the brain, which do have a tendency to decrease under periods of sleep deprivation. So by supplementing with creating, uh, we can, inc again, increase the brain creating pools and therefore be able to maintain our skill and concentration levels when we are sleep deprived. So that's a really cool um, and promised area to look at. Um, and then we know it can be a potential uh, or have the potential to increase muscle protein synthesis, collection storage, and what's really cool as well is that it's potentially quite neuroprotective. So this is something I've been looking to more recently in terms of supplement with combat-based sports athletes or anybody such as rugby players who are involved in contact sports and have a heightened risk of hand injury, i.e. concussion, just because you know it can be neuroprotective there. So knowing all of this, one of the questions I do get asked is, you know, do I need to load it? Do I need to just take a maintenance dose? Like, what do you recommend? And realistically, it, it makes no difference. It's more of a, a timing issue. So if you are going to load it, you perhaps look at, you know, your standard loading um, procedure of 20 grams per day for five days. And that 20 grams is split perhaps into four servings. So four times five grams servings per day for uh, five days. And then you just go on to, a maintenance phase for um so on about say three to five grams per day and we know that by doing this we can increase the stores your muscle stores by about 20 percent uh within that five day period that loading period or you know we could just take a maintenance dose of three to five grams per day and you get the same kind of loading effect but you know it's extended over a um so a three-week period so it's mainly just a timing thing. Like, do you want the muscles loaded in five days or can you just kick back and chill and just have it fully loaded in three weeks? So it's really just a timing thing. So if I work with someone in pre-season and, you know, they start working with me, say, a week before pre-season, I want to hit the ground running session one. It's like, okay, we might as well load during that week. And then when we get to our first session, you know, carbide stores in the muscle are fully sort of topped up. Um the second question I get then is, right, Chris, do I need to cycle uh, creatine? And the answer is, no, you, you don't. So there's one study, if I can remember it correctly, where they supplemented about 30 grams of creatine per day for five years straight, and they had no adverse um, effects to health. So if we're, say, looking at taking a maintenance dose or maybe three to five grams per day, um, you know, you really aren't going to see any negatives there. Um, so there's no real need. So we know that once we stop taking creatine, it'll take roughly about 28 days, so like a month, 
for that 20% elevated stores to return back to baseline. So if you just have a week off, you know, you're only going to perhaps lose about 5% of those stores. So this whole sort of idea of, you know, load the muscle, take for four to five weeks and then come off it, you know, it's just a bit futile, really. You don't really need to. So this is one supplement I just take year round and don't really need to um, sort of cycle it. So the third supplement we'll look at taking to improve performance during our training week is beta-alanine. Now, beta-alanine is, no, is known as an intracellular buffer. So what's going to be really beneficial here is that once we supplement with beta-alanine, is that it's going to improve our sustained um, high-intensity performances. Reason being... Um, we aim to take beta-alanine to increase the muscle's carnosine content. Now, once we increase the muscle's carnosine content, it is basically going to protect the muscle against this accumulation in protons and hydrogen ions, which is essentially that acidity and burning sensation you get under periods of high-intensity efforts. I know that this burning sensation within the muscle, this increased acidity, um, you know, almost like impedes the muscle to contract properly and function properly. So the idea is, is if we can decrease this accumulation in acidity, then we can perform better and we basically sort of delay uh, when, so we say just delay the onset of fatigue. So we know that this is going to be most beneficial when you're taking um, it for events or should we say the need to improve performance that's sustained for about one to four minutes. So this is, if you think about it, pretty much every sport really. So whether it's a case of um, sort of team sports or whether it's a case of you're taking it chronically throughout the week to improve like performance on the weekend. Say for example, if you're doing a, an endurance event, um, on a whole, you probably won't be needing it, but you will have certain time points in that race where you perhaps uh, need to sprint or there's like a kick in the hill that you need to sort of you know pedal or run harder with and where you perhaps will have this um you know this generation of acidity in the muscle and therefore we know that we'll have increased currency levels that can help buffer that much better so just like creating you need to uh, load it so what we're looking for is about 65 milligrams per kilogram you weigh for about 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, and then we know we can then maintain that by about 1 to 1.2 grams per day. So we know that when we load it for that sort of duration, i.e. 10 to 12 weeks, we can increase the currency stores within the muscle by about 50 to 85%. So when we think about it, when you say take a pre-workout that has beta-alanine in and you get this, this tingling sensation, um, realistically, if unless you're taking it like day in, day out, like you're not really going to get a performance benefit from the, um, the beta-alanine within that supplement. It's more of a placebo effect from that tingling sensation. You think like, oh, wow, this I feel weird. I feel great. It must have a performance benefit. Whereas the case of it will, if you are loading it and you're taking it for a long enough period of time to increase the currency levels within the muscle. But if you're just taking it now and again, realistically, you can have minimal impact uh, on performance. So, you know, the pre-workout uh, beta-alanine, 
probably doesn't really work unless you're taking it uh, chronically. And like I mentioned there, you do have this uh, tingling sensation, which isn't overly pleasant. So if you're taking, you know, 65 milligrams per kilo per day, you know, that could be perhaps five grams uh, or something like that per day, depending on your body weight. If you take all that one, you're going to feel pretty weird, <laughs> really sort of tingling. So you probably look to split that into a few servings over the course of the day. Like this tingling sensation isn't, um, you know, harmful at all. It just feels a little weird. So what I really would suggest is, I, for beta-alanine supplementation, I wouldn't take it year-round. I'd perhaps start supplementing and loading with it if you had like a key event or something that you had to be peaking for. So say, for example, if you're a cyclist and in August you have you know your sort of target race, you may think, okay, 10 to 12 weeks prior to that, I would look at supplementing with unloading beta-alanine to make sure carnitine levels are topped up for that race. Um, where say a rugby player would probably just take it uh, throughout the course of the season, then off season just come off it, and perhaps even like the start of preseason, uh, you may not touch it, um, and then start loading up throughout the preseason, so the back end of it, and then you're good to go for the season itself. Then once we've got that uh, training week ticked off, we can look at competition specific. Um, supplements. So this is where the real sort of periodization comes into it all. And there's three things we're going to really look at here. I'm going to be going into more of the competition strategies in due course, but today I thought I'd give you a nice little overview of the supplements that are involved. So one being caffeine. So question straight off the back is why don't we use caffeine throughout the training week and why do we just use it for competition? So first of all, we know that caffeine is going to be very beneficial for high-intensity anaerobic-based stuff, stuff, <laughs> exercise, I mean, um, endurance, aerobic-based exercise, uh, team sports, strength, power. Literally, caffeine is going to be beneficial for every type of sport. Uh, it's really going to be that great. Um, reason being is that it's uh, known as a adenosine receptor antagonist, which sounds kind of fancy but essentially adenosine promotes sleep and regulates that sleep-wake cycle so if caffeine is an adenosine receptor antagonist caffeine binds that receptor and essentially prevents adenosine from doing so therefore it prevents us from feeling pretty sleepy drowsy and so on and therefore it once that sort of bound uh, it increases neuromuscular function, increases muscle contractibility, improves alertness, and what's really cool is that it decreases your perceived effort and increases your pain tolerance. So all very, very cool things happen for competition. But if I go back to my uh, previous question in terms of why don't we take it throughout the training week, it's more of a case of when it comes to the competition side of stuff, I want these supplements to be an added benefit, like an extra tool in a toolbox. If you're already using this throughout the training week, we don't have any added benefit when it comes to the weekend. And granted, there's some studies showing that, you know, long-term caffeine supplementation can improve your um, tolerance and therefore you need more to get the same benefit. There's also some studies to show complete opposite, but that's not really the case either. It's more case of you know if you are having to have high dose caffeine supplements to get up for a training session 
you know, it's probably going to show that you have some pretty clear deficiencies in your diet, whether it's overall calorie intake, carbohydrate intake, you know, your sleep could be pretty poor, you know, it's almost just using it as a little bit of an escape to sort of um, minimize the, you know, or shall we say to cover up the deficiencies in your diet. So throughout the training week, I just like, say, fueling your performance properly, having this amount of carbohydrates, fluids, and make sure you're not in a big calorie deficit and all that kind of stuff, and then use caffeine as an extra um, tool and toolbox for when it comes to the performance side of it on the uh, weekend or whenever you whenever you are competing. Um, by all means, that doesn't that's not to say that you can't have coffee and stuff throughout the week. That's cool. Um, you know, the coffee I think is more of the social element of it. Um, but when we look at caffeine for performance, we're actually looking at quite high dosages. So when we look at the dose of caffeine, we're looking anywhere between three to six milligrams per kilogram. And that's what's shown to be effective on average. Now, some people are more sensitive to caffeine and therefore require a lower dose. So about one milligram per kilo, um, where super high dosages of, you know, upwards of six and about nine milligrams per kilo can actually be very ergolytic in nature, which is which means that it's going to be detrimental to performance. So we know that, you know, if we take zero caffeine, we're not going to get a performance benefit. Then we have that sweet spot between three to six milligrams per kilo. So if we do the maths quickly, if you're 100 kilos, um, then that's anywhere between 300 and 600 milligrams. And then if you have too much, it's going to sort of dip um, dip off. So when we look at the finding what dose is right for you, we, it makes sense to start on the lower end and then build up uh, and to find your effective dose. And we always do this in training first because we know that if you have too much caffeine, it is going to be ergolytic. So you're going to feel very nervous, irritable, anxious, uh, which is, you know, characteristics you definitely do not want when you're going to compete. So it's always better to have a poor training performance as opposed to a poor competition performance from just having too much caffeine. So I would uh, identify a training session in your week that replicates uh, or very much has similar demands to a competition and then I'll try it then so and then just write down like right I've had I know say 100 milligrams of caffeine how did this feel did I see a benefit did I have any gut issues from it what happened and then from there you can start tailoring in your specific caffeine dose so the question is then is like right where then do I get caffeine from so, you know, we've got our choices of, you know, coffee, you've got powders, you know, you've got um, caffeine gums, all that kind of stuff, and tablets. So, on a whole, um, like I mentioned, I don't mind you having coffee throughout the sort of training week, that's absolutely cool, but I would avoid having any of the powders and stuff. I'm going to leave them to the weekend for when you're competing, and it's a very good reason why. It's purely because we can't overly depend on coffee uh, in terms of its accuracy of caffeine content. So, for example, just uh, highlight one 2007 study here where they identified, or should we say analyzed, 97 different espressos from five different coffee shops and the caffeine content it did average about 100-ish milligrams but the range was between 25 milligrams which is absolutely nothing and 214 milligrams which will absolutely blow your head off so the reason why we don't use coffee for competition it might be a case of 
one week you go in, have a, an espresso, and they're like, right, okay, that didn't work. It could be that 25 milligram espresso you had. And then next week you think, okay, the 25 milligram didn't work, or should we say that normal coffee didn't work? And they accidentally serve you 214 milligrams. But this time you think, oh, because the one serving didn't work, I'm going to double it. And all of a sudden you go and jump from 25 milligrams over 400 milligrams. And you know it's going to blow your fucking head off. So we really don't have uh, coffee or overly rely on coffee before we have some competitions. Uh, and therefore we opt for coffee, uh, sorry, caffeine powders, tablets, and gums and stuff like that because they're going to be more reliable. If a tablet has 50 milligrams in it, you can be very certain it's going to have a 50 milligrams in it. And, you know, it's going to be far more reliable and you can have more trust in what you are taking and there's not going to be any hidden surprises. Secondly, I would be looking at nitrate supplementation also. So nitrates uh, are really going to benefit um, you know, exercise or sports that heavily rely on your type 2 muscle fibers, so very much anaerobic-based conditions. Um, so this is very much the case of any, like, high-intensity-based sports or even, like, endurance sports that have high-intensity efforts in it. Like I mentioned before, like, you might do a sort of cycling event or running event, and it might be sort of steady, but there might be um, the odd sprints you have to do or it's like a kick in a hill that you really have to put more effort in and you might uh, dip into more anaerobic based conditions so this is where that's going to be very beneficial so nitrates are primarily found in things like beetroot and leafy green vegetables so you might have seen like on my instagram stories or feed or facebook and so on um or other sort of athletes taking say beat it shorts and so on so essentially they're going to be very high in nitrate and once consumed uh, gets converted to nitrite and nitric oxide and nitric oxide then is your vasodilator and what that does then it can improve the muscle contractibility and it more importantly increases the oxygen delivery and economy of the muscle so if we think that it's going to dilate your blood vessels so make them shall we say bigger uh, therefore more blood and therefore more oxygen within that blood could be carried to the working muscle and therefore they get somewhat fatigue resistance so again if we think of like repeated high intensity based efforts say if you're in team sports you perhaps may be able to do a few more um, sort of repeated efforts before feeling that fatigue. So it delays the onset of fatigue. Um, so what we need to be thinking of here really is the timing and the dose. So what's been shown around eight millimoles of nitrates, which is about 500 milligrams, um, is going to be effective when taken about two and a half to three hours prior to events because it takes about two and a half to three hours for that conversion to take place from nitrite, sorry, nitrate to nitrite to nitric oxide. Um, what a lot of people do, which is um, pretty much futile for their performance and the sort of overall benefit of nitrates, is that they'll have like a beat it shot, which takes, it just tastes horrible. Um, it's just not nice. Um, but then because it tastes horrible, they have a swig of mouthwash, like an antibacterial mouthwash. And that actually decreases the conversion of nitrate, nitrate and nitric oxide. And, you know, it comes, renders these supplements pretty useless. Um, so that's something we've got to uh, consider as well. You know, the dose and uh, the timing, very, very important. 
Now you can sort of chronically load it. Like I like to do a 30 hour load. Uh, you can load this sort off of every day of the week uh, leading into events, but I will cover that more in the competition and event or game day uh, podcast, which I'll be doing in due course. Uh, but for now, what we've got to think of beetroot and nitrate-based products are going to be very beneficial for high-intensity-based exercise because it allows extra oxygen to be delivered to the muscle and it improves the overall sort of um, oxygen economy of the muscle and therefore delays fatigue. And last but not least, um, sodium bicarbonate is something that is going to be very beneficial for your performance, but could also be very negative to performance if you get it wrong, which I definitely have. Um, so this is one that nobody really knows about and nobody really uses. So sodium bicarbonate is, is going to be very, very beneficial for high-intensity-based performances. And you probably recognize the name as baking soda. Um, super cheap. Nobody really puts in supplement form, uh, but it works really, really well. And so just like we covered with beta-alanine, it's an intracellular buffer. Sodium bicarbonate is an extracellular buffer. So what happens is that the extracellular, so outside of the muscle, um, it basically increases uh, its bicarbonate levels. And bicarbonate is very alkaline, where we know under periods of high-intensity based exercise, the muscle gets very acidic. So what that does then, it naturally creates this pH gradient where the body obviously likes to create this like equilibrium, likes to create balance. So what happens then is that acidity essentially pulled out of the muscle and into the blood. And therefore, because the acidity, either hydrogen ions and lactate um, is decreased within the muscle, it can perform better for longer so that's going to be a really really um beneficial supplement to use and research has shown is that if you sort of combine uh sodium bicarbonate with um beta alanine it could be very very sort of um ergogenic to performance it would be very enhancing um so the way we can take this is essentially a single dose of about 200 to 400 milligrams per kilogram. So if you weigh 100 kilos, you know, that's between 20 and 40 grams of sodium bicarbonate about three hours prior. Um, you could even split the dose if it gives you gut issues and perhaps add in about 100 to 150 grams of carbs, so about 1.5 gram per kilogram. Um, with the sodium bicarbonate sort of serving can decrease gut issues as well. So that's one key thing there I mentioned is the gut issues. And this is reason why nobody uses it and why I'm actually very hesitant in suggesting and recommending it because there is one massive sort of warning label on it. Um, and that is you could shit yourself and it's not a very pleasant thing, especially when, to be, when you want to be performing at your best. So if I reflect and rewind back to my, I think it's my master's degree, uh, where we did uh, sort of high intensity based sprinting on bikes in terms of experimentation. Um, and what we did, we looked at sodium bicarbonate and its effect on overall sort of performance. So uh, I was the sort of natural volunteer there. So what I did was I did like a control test where I didn't take anything. And then the second one, I took sodium bicarbonate. 
And because that's perhaps a little bit naive back in the day, I didn't really read the sort of potential negatives to it. And they really take too much notice of the um, dosages and the serving rec- recommendations. Um, I basically just sort of whacked it all in at once and then kind of just hope for the best. And I had probably the worst gut issues ever. And when you have like a whole team of like, um, say, sports science students, like shouting you, like, fucking come on, you know, just to work really hard. And you're more concerned about not shitting yourself is not a great thing. And it's very ergolytic to performance. And needless to say that the test got um, cut short. And I'm very thankful that the corridor from the lab to the toilet was quite short as well. Um, because if it's perhaps, you know, a little bit longer and I had to go down a few flights of stairs, it could have been disastrous. And I probably would have had to quit uni, move country, and there would be no crystalline nutrition. So, um, yeah, sodium bicarbonate, is a, it can be a very good thing, but it can be a very bad thing as well. Uh, depends on how you sort of dose it and how you respond to it. Some people, um, if they dose it correctly, can get very good benefits from this. But if you're like myself, who are very naive and just took it without looking at any further recommendations or anything, it could end pretty badly. Um, I will put my hand up and say I haven't tried it since because I just have my own biases against it. Um, but I know a lot of practitioners that do use it. And it can be very beneficial, like I was saying. Um, I have used it with a couple of athletes, but I've kind of gone through all the pros and cons to it, given my sort of experiences with it. And in case of like, right, let's try this in training first, just in case something goes wrong. Because, you know, we definitely don't get in uh, to the field of play in front of like loads of people. It could be very embarrassing. Now, what we got to uh, think about all, all this sort of competition-based supplementation is that, in terms of the research anyway, all these supplements really are tested in isolation. And all these supplements do have the potential to have negatives. And they do have the potential to have negatives with regards to gut issues, like I mentioned. So, so for example, um, nitrate supplementation can, so those beta shots can cause gut issues. Um, so sodium bicarbonate can, high dose caffeine can. Like I mentioned, if you are sleep deprived, then creatine intake may be very beneficial too. And what's been shown, if you take 10 grams of creatine about 90 minutes before some form of um, skill-based sport, it can improve um, your skill acquisition. So if we would say, think like, okay, all this, all these tools in the toolbox are great. I'm going to just use them all at once. Who knows how you are going to respond to it because um, the research hasn't been done. So what I would say is just try each one in isolation and then perhaps try and put them together and try and formulate your own plan of action. So you know you've got all these tools in a toolbox. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use all of them at once. Try and plug them all into your plan over time and find out what works, what doesn't. And then over time, you'll have and you'll have formulated your personal sort of supplement plan of action. And this is something I do with pretty much uh, with the boys of wasps or my online coaching clients. Um, it just takes a little bit of trial and error, but we know that these are the tools uh, and therefore this is what we're going to um, try out over the next sort of few weeks uh, to find out exactly what works and what doesn't. And that's pretty much it for our supplement checklist. Um, you know, we've got our sort of health-based supplements, which are, you know, your vitamin D and fish oil. We've got our training week, which is, you know, our creatine, our beta alanine, and our whey protein. And then we've got our sort of additional stuff on top of that for competition, i.e. caffeine, nitrates, 
and sodium bicarbonate. Now, there's going to be a lot of supplements I haven't covered um, purely because there isn't really much need for them and there's no real place um, in the in a plan of action for them for an athlete. Now, there are certain ones we look at in terms of immune function and rehabilitation, and I will be going into them in due course. But for your run-of-the-mill week in, week out, they're the ones that I really sort of focus on. And again, they probably won't have too much of an impact if your diet isn't complete. So say, for example, you put over-reliance in your nitrate supplementation for an endurance event when you haven't done a carb load. No, it's going to do fuck all. It won't do anything. So you really need to focus on the basics first. And then we can perhaps look at these supplementation strategies for that extra sort of added benefit. And, you know, there really is, like we said, it is the icing on top of the cake. It is those sprinkles, those hundreds and thousands. We need to bake that cake first, which is your diet as a whole. You know, making sure you have the right calorie balance. Make sure you have enough mac, have enough um, protein, fats, and carbohydrates that's specific to your training demand and your goal. You know, you're following a food first approach. You're not doing anything that will compromise the sustainability of your diet. All those things are super, super important. Then we look at the supplementation side of it, um, bar perhaps the health-based ones, which we know are there really just to minimize nutrient deficiencies. But from the performance-based ones, you know, we really are going to look at them at a later date as opposed to make them the highest priority. So hopefully you now know um, essentially what supplements to take, how much to take, and when to take. So you just have a nice sort of clarity in building and formulating your plan of action going forward. Um, so guys, that is us for today. I uh, appreciate it being a little bit longer than previous episodes, but if you have any questions, queries, comments, anything like that, just please let me know. Either sort of, you know, just comment below or just reach me out. Uh, so reach out to me on Insta DMs or Facebook DMs as well. Um, you know, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with you and discuss anything with regards to uh, supplementation side of it from there. And also, if you did uh, get value out of today, um, please don't forget to sort of like, share um, and subscribe because we have actually loads more in store uh, in the upcoming weeks. Now, uh, until next time, guys. Have a great day and stay safe, stay indoors. Um, we're still in lockdown, so try and do your best at sort of still progressing with your goals. If you haven't checked episode three, um, Thriving During COVID, I highly recommend you do that because it's just going to give you some real nice clarity uh, with in terms of how to structure your days and weeks so you still progress to some form of goal so you come to the end of this lockdown in a much better state.